what it's like creating a whole club philosophy, how there are numerous benefits from working with a coach mentor, and ways to track player development are all crucial coaching topics which are discussed today on the podcast with Aaron Tyler. Welcome to the Walk Talks Coaching Podcast. I'm a student studying sport coaching and physical education at the world's leading sport uni, Loughborough University. On the podcast, we discuss everything coaching from tactics and techniques to team culture and managing egos with some of the leading experts, coaches and practitioners. You can follow us on Instagram at WT underscore coaching and on Twitter at WT coaching. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. So we've got Aaron Tyler on the podcast today. So the first thing, just so everyone knows, we have 60 seconds uh, just to explain who you are and what you do. Great. Okay. Um, so as you just said, my name's Aaron. Um, I'm a I'm a football coach. Uh, currently have a UEFA B license. Can't wait to get on my UEFA A license. And I coach at four different clubs and uh, regional talent centres at the moment. And that's anything from foundation age, which is five to 11 year olds, right up to professional development phase, which is your under 18s, under 21s. Um, I also work for the uh, FA as a coach mentor, which means I go out and help other coaches uh, improve on anything that they feel they need particular support in that time. I help clubs develop um, develop programs, develop philosophies and, and strategies for them to become better clubs. Um, and, and all of that together keeps me pretty busy, to be honest. Uh, in addition, I'm, I'm married to my wife, Karen. I've got two boys, Austin and Aidan who also both play football, so I try and spend as much time with them as I can. Um, and I think that pretty much covers me. Brilliant. I mean, that's very busy <laughs> in all of that. But um, it's, it shows you've got a great range of experience as well, uh, coaching at different clubs, different ages and everything like that. So that's, that's brilliant. And um, the coach mentor with the FA, that's, um, they've brought that out and it's a, it's a free system as well, isn't it? That's right. So yeah. uh, anyone... The, the, the motto that we use in the Southwest is any coach, any time. So if you're a grassroots coach, um, this is, you should point out this is for grassroots coaches. There's a separate program for elite coaches. If you're a grassroots coach, uh, you require some support. You can go onto your local county football association website. There should be a link there for the mental program. You just send in your details. That goes to a central team, and then they'll appoint the most appropriate mentor for you, depending on your location and the requirements you've got. Brilliant. And also, um, there's a big priority as well on BAME coaches and female disabled coaches, which is really good as well, isn't it? That's right. In actual fact, I'm for Gloucestershire, I'm the lead female coach developer. Now, that's not female coaches. That's coaches who coach in the female game. So anyone who's got a girls or women's team, whether you're male or female coach yourself, um, we've we've set up a a separate group for those so they can can share ideas, share resources and, and promote the growth of the game or the female game, really. That's brilliant. Really, really good. So diving into exactly what you do as a coach mentor, uh, one of the things that we spoke about earlier is that you go and you create a whole club philosophy. Yep, that is one thing I do. Um, So creating club philosophy is something that I support coaches with doing. Um, We don't go and dictate. We don't say, well, you should be doing this, you should be doing the other, and you've all got to play out from the back or whatever. Each coach or, or club will, will be different. They'll have their own identity. They'll have their own strengths. They'll have their own areas that they want to improve in. Um, and what I and other coach mentors will do is create a framework within which the club can develop their philosophy. And so, to start with, it might be as simple as actually just defining and reminding the clubs what a philosophy is. Because you've got different, within football, we've got probably three different types of philosophies, or I break it down into three. Um, one is your coaching philosophy and by that I mean um, coaching philosophy might be that we're we're always going to ask the players what they think we're always going to sort of guide them to an answer rather than telling them what an answer is Um, that might be a a coaching philosophy playing philosophy might be uh, we are going to play out from the back we're going to be a possession-based team we're going to play through the thirds we're going to try and always have a spare man and we're going to we're going to we're, yeah, we're going we're gonna to beat teams through possession. We're going to play a bit like um, Barcelona did back in the day, or still do now. And then you've got your club philosophy. And your club philosophy is more about 
what you stand for as a club. So if you are an elite club, then you stand for winning. You stand for winning as many trophies as you can. You stand for getting promoted. You want all your teams playing at the highest level they possibly can. And that's a perfectly good philosophy. And that's pretty much what a lot of professional clubs' philosophies are. However, you might be a community club. You might be a club that goes, anyone who wants to play football at any time, we will do everything we can to provide them with that opportunity. Whether you're a five-year-old and you're coming to play football for the first time, or whether you're a 65-year-old and um, your running days are behind you, but you still want to play walking football, whether you come from any background, any ethnic background, any, any demographic at all, male or female, will provide you with an opportunity to play football. Um, and that's your club philosophy. And as a mentor, I, I help across all, all sorts of th- all three philosophies, uh, depending on what, on what the clubs require. That's great. And also, as you mentioned there, the, um, every club can have a different philosophy based on the coaches they have and the aims and what they want to kind of achieve. Because otherwise, there'd be a very good sense of the FA would be doing this programme, but every club would be coming, becoming the same type of club with the same philosophy. That's just not the case, is it? No, not at all. No, not at all. It's very much facilitation. Um, my role, so I've got, I guess I've got two hats. I've got my coaching hat, which, which maybe I'll talk about in a minute, and then my mentoring hat. And as a mentor for the FA, we are facilitators. We're there to guide people to the resources, the material, uh, and the other things that they may need to be successful and to help answer the questions that they've got. Um, and, it, and like I said earlier, it's all about building a framework that they can then go, Right, we want we want to have this philosophy for all of our youth football, this philosophy for our adult football. We we want to grow as a community club, so we're going to go, go and add a female side because we've only got male players at the moment, and we'll give them the tools and the guidance to support them um, with doing that. Um, yeah, that's great. So then, linking as you just said there to your coaching side, how would you say your learning and your coaching has changed for you since you've become a coach mentor? This <laughs> is a lot. Is how it's changed. So I was approached about being a coach mentor while still studying my UA for B. So um, I'm sure most of your listeners will know, but for those that don't, the B license takes a minimum of, of a year, um, sometimes slightly under a season, a season long, so 10 months. Uh, you go in over, the, over that period and spend time with the tutors uh, on course with all of the other learners. And then in between the blocks of learning, a tutor will come out and observe you in your own environment and observe your coaching at your, at your club. Um, uh, fortunately, I, I did well on that course. Um, and before I'd finished it, I was approached by the county coach developer to ask what my plans were with coaching. And, and then he, he was kind enough to say that I'd stood out and would I consider uh, getting involved with a mentoring program, which I was very interested in did. And so I took that on, like I say, um, uh, once I'd passed, you, you need to be a B licensed coach to actually be on it. So as soon as I passed, I was able to start. Um, and it's very rare that you can go into a coaching environment, sit back, watch a coach, see the challenges that that coach faces and have the time to think about it. So if I'm a coach and I'm coaching 16, 15 year old lads full of energy and um, the session I'm doing isn't quite going to plan or something's cropped up that I hadn't expected, I've got to think on my feet right there, right then, how am I going to change this so that I can deliver a better session for, for these players? As a mentor, I'm able to sit back and watch that coach, see what's happening, sometimes see what they can't see because they're so involved in the session and have that moment, as I say, of actually being able to sit back and think, what would I do now? And of course, I've got to think that because that coach is about to turn around to me and go, Aaron, things aren't quite working. What do you think? And so by being in that observation position, means that I've learned so much about my own coaching. I've learned so much about different environments, about different types of sessions. I've learned stuff from the coaches I've been watching and, and, and it's fantastic. And it's something I would recommend anyone get is a mentor. I can't wait to get back to coaching and, and get my mentor to come see me. And I can't wait to get out and start observing other coaches, those that have more experience, less experience, but lots of different environments because you, you learn so much once you observe another coach. Exactly. I think it's kind of that situation where you can't see the wood from the trees or if you're exactly. so involved in the session it's very hard to step back and kind of look at it um, objectively and that's exactly what you know being a coach mentor you're able to do that so um, it's, it's really really good now you um, you coach uh, a men's football team for about four years and then you made the transition to coaching a women's 
uh, university football team at Bristol University. That's right. Uh, so how did you find that transition? Was there any different challenges that you didn't necessarily expect or was it was it similar in some ways or how did you find that? Um, I, to be perfectly honest, uh, I've never been so nervous to go and coach a football session. Apart, apart, really? apart, apart from maybe when I was getting assessed on my level two, which was many years ago now, where it was a do, it was a pass or fail moment back then. It's, it's not anymore. It's uh, more, they assess you across the length of the course. Um, but other than that, there's a single standalone coaching session. The very first session I did with the ladies at Bristol Uni um, was, yeah, was nerve wracking. Um, and uh, I just didn't know what to expect, to be honest. Um, and what the big difference that I noticed on that session and throughout the season I spent with um, if I say girls, I don't mean to be, they're all obviously ladies, but I call them girls the same as I call them men, boys. I spent with the girls um, that season is, compared to men, they, they just don't chat back. If I, say, nice. if, I say, if I said something, if I said, right, we're going to do this, they would just go and do it. If I said to the men, we're going to go do this, I'd have half of them go, oh, why, what are we doing that for? And the other half going, well, surely we should be doing something different. And you end up having a bit of a... Um, yeah, it's just you're always having to prove yourself um, with, with the guys. And I think that's just, I guess, historically, a lot of men will have grown up with football. They've grown up with their, their dads or their parents liking football. And so they've got very strong opinions. And the girls at Bristol Uni, a lot of them were sort of first generational footballers in their families. And they didn't necessarily have that background of constant opinion and constantly being told stuff. Um and actually, it became a bit of a challenge in the first few weeks because I wasn't getting any feedback from them. It was difficult to know whether they were understanding what I was saying. It was difficult to know if they agreed because if they didn't, then we needed to change it. And it, and I, what I've realised since um, as a mentor to coaches in the female game and from the more experience I've had in coaching the female game is it isn't that they don't understand. It isn't that they've not had this background of, of football. It's because... A female player wants to build trust with their coach. Um, maybe more so of a male coach. I don't know. Obviously, I'm not a female, so I couldn't comment. But um, once they want to, there to be an element of trust that they know they can trust you as a coach to offer their opinion and you're not going to shoot them down in flames, that you're not going to um, think differently of them because they've offered an opinion. Um, and after, I don't know, maybe four or five weeks, we started to build a really good, relationship the players and I um and and when we did we had an extremely successful season when we we drew the first game and won everything else won the league and cup double so on the pitch it was going well but off the pitch once we started to build that trust and and we and we had that always from the start there was mutual respect but through time you get an even greater respect for each other the performances went went through the roof and the, the girls did extremely well um and we were able to have some really frank discussions and but as a group, I've never worked with a group that supported each other as well so much. They were always there to, if someone made a mistake, they picked them up, they supported them, they said, come on, let's go again, don't worry about it. And I've been in environments where, I don't know, myself, I played as a forward. If I missed an opportunity, some of the players would give you give you pelters and some of the managers mm -hmm. would give you grief as well. Um, so they're incredibly supportive of each other. And, and I guess from my experience, I don't know if it's the same for everyone else, I'd say that was the big difference is, it's much more of a family feel in a in in the female game, and and that need for, like say, for respect and and mutuality in, in what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, well, that, that's brilliant. It's obviously testament to of what you achieve, but also how you speak about that team. I'm sure that if you to ask the players that have the same the same feeling, I would have loved to have stayed with them um, for longer. It was. It was moving to them, working with them for that season that inspired me to take on the B licence. Um, and on course, you have to, your project has to cover a minimum of 18 competitive games uh, for it to be allowed. And uh, even though we got to the cup final and, like I say, won the league, all of those games together, we only played 16 games that season, unfortunately. And that's just how it was set up in the Bucks League. So I couldn't stay and do my A for B. Since then, They've gone on a, on a tremendous run. Um, they're now one of the top uni teams in the country. Uh, and I, I can't recall the coach's name, but they've got a really good coach in charge. He's taken them on for the last two seasons and they're, they're, they're doing great things. 
So, yes, as you just said, uh, with feedback from players, it's quite interesting. I think definitely when you work with uh, younger players, they definitely, because they're children, it's great because they will give you the feedback. If a session's not going well, they'll uh, they'll tell you they're not enjoying it. Whereas sometimes yeah. I think with older players, they sometimes might not tell you, but then still think it, obviously, which isn't great because obviously it's all about building that communication and trust with um the players and that openness and allowing them to uh, to voice their opinion. But sometimes with the older players, it's far more difficult, I think, than with you know your younger players. I think it, it can all depend on the sort of um, culture that you've got at your club. Absolutely, particularly in elite environments, your players are so desperate to get on to progress to potentially sign professionally with their club that they don't necessarily want to rock the boat because they don't want to be seen as as the person that's causing trouble for the coach and that to put um, their career at risk. Um, however, all good coaches should, and I believe do, ask for feedback as often as possible. And if you're not asking for feedback from the player, how do you know whether they've understood what you're trying to get across? And, and, and also, are, can you create decision makers? A key part of football is you're constantly making decisions. Should I pass there? Should I dribble? Should I hit? Should I run? Should I turn? Should I mark? Should I move? Whatever the decision is, you need to be able to make that decision for yourself. One, the old adage that once you've crossed the white line, it's down to the players is true. But you need to give, as a coach, you need to give the players the tools to look after themselves during a the game, i.e. make decisions and make the right decisions. And you can only do that by engaging them, giving them the opportunity, getting their feedback, getting their involvement within coaching uh, during all the training sessions all the way through your time with them. And then they develop into to much more rounded and holistic players. Exactly. I think, as you just said there, the environment is key, 100%. You've got to lay the foundations from that first session to make sure that everyone is, you know, can speak up and will speak up when they want to, you know, not being afraid of, oh, if I, if I say something here, he won't play me on the Sunday. So. Exactly. If someone is scared of saying something um, to your face, you can guarantee that they'll be saying it behind your back. Or, or if they're not saying it, they're thinking it. And it's still a problem. If they won't say it to you, it's still a problem because they're thinking it. And if they're thinking it and it's not out in the open, you've got no opportunity to either adapt yourself or to, to change that thinking. Uh, and it's usually a balance between the two. I mean, interesting, I'm reading a great book at the moment called One Goal, which is by Bill Beswick. Uh, he's a sports psychologist that's worked with Man um, United, England football team and, and various others. Um, and it's called One Goal, The Mindset of Winning Soccer Teams. And he's got a whole chapter, a really good chapter on creating uh, a culture, the right culture within a team and creating the winning culture. Um, and I just, it's a great book. I've read multiple pages multiple times, to be honest, because uh, I just would, it's so good. And I think that the psychological side of coaching has always been there. You've always heard of that. Oh, yeah, great, gave a great team talk before the match or at halftime, et cetera. Um, but it's now becoming much more recognised, even at grassroots level. That you've, you've got to, you've got to spend a lot of your time on the psychological and social side of coaching. Yes, one hundred percent. As you just said there as well, the feedback is so important, and you can do what you think is a great session, and the players, you know, they're absolutely lost. And I'm sure as well, that's where a coach mentor can help as well with creating that environment for the players to speak out but that feed it's another source of feedback again isn't it it is you also by going in as a coach mentor it, it changes the session a little bit particularly as a turn up and obviously all the fa kit and uh, and the badge and and everyone suddenly oh this is a bit different this session is not like like it was last week we've got someone else watching here who is this person and i usually the coach will introduce me and certainly I'll ask them to and then i just observe and even just your presence can, like I say, can change that session because some players might suddenly put a bit more effort in or they, whereas they might have been a little bit, I don't know, they might have messed around with their teammates beforehand. Now they'll, be, they'll, they'll pay more attention. Um, or some of them will go the other way and actually try and get more focus on them by, by playing up or doing things differently and they aren't always as, as productive. So whilst we're always there to support as coach mentors, we, we, we do change the status quo a little bit. And, um, and that uh, means that the coaches need to adapt. The big thing that we ask that we ask of coaches is to, is to try and see the things that we're seeing and to do that, they need to take a step back. 
for the first few sessions I'll spend with a coach. Um, well, the first one I'll just observe. They do 100% whatever they do. I won't say a word from the start till the end and, and then we'll catch up afterwards. But by the second, third time that I'm with that coach, um, I'll try and get them to, to step back with me and, and watch the session, really watch what's going on, look at what the players are doing, look at what the players are saying to each other, and then to go in and ask the right questions or to ask different questions. And, and lots of them are open questions. So tell me how you felt about that drill. Tell me how you, uh, what you think and went well within that session. Tell me what you think could be improved. Tell me what you understood, what you didn't understand. And these really open questions from the coaches. Um, and when they do that, the players will open up. Um, they, they, will, they will tell you as soon as they're given the opportunity to. Um, and I think a lot of coaches have come back after I spent time with them and said, oh, it's great. We, 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 um, the players and I now have this much more two-way dialogue rather than me going, right, we're doing this, and then we're doing that. And at the end, we're going to do the other. It's much more um, ownership from the players and, and therefore the learning, the rate of learning increases dramatically. That's brilliant. I think um, as well with the players maybe acting a bit differently when they see, you know, the England badge and the, the coach mental there. I think it's very much like at schools when, you know, when Ofsted come in, um, the the lesson is completely different to when it's normally yeah. going on. So there's always that element of that and I guess you've got to have that um, in your mind but the more you'd be there the more it'd be more of a realistic and just general session anyway so that's yeah no, absolutely once, the, once again once you everyone's comfortable with your presence then things go back to how they were and then and then you you become part of the team ultimately I mean I've worked with coaches who just needed a little bit of support to go to, to, to get past another FA license another uh, coaching badge um, and then I've worked with other coaches that wanted longer term support because they really wanted to develop their team. And there are so many dedicated coaches working in, in grassroots football. Um, and a lot of the time they're out there on their own or they might be there with an assistant coach or another coach is helping them or one or two parents. And they'll have thousands of ideas and thoughts running through their mind every week about what they're doing and are they doing the right thing for their team that just having a sounding board sometimes just having someone on the end of a whatsapp and go Aaron what do you think about this or Aaron this happened and um, I don't know what to do next or Aaron do you mind if I just shout a main to you for five or ten minutes and because <laughs> um, and, and it can be a lonely place and uh, the more that coaches work with each other we're not ultimately we're not really we are in competition with each other if we're playing a game but the rest of the time we're all in it together we're all trying to be to be the best that we can um, and just recently, I think you've, you've probably seen that, I've just started sharing a couple of things on Twitter, like session plans and, and other bits and pieces. And it's just for people to use to see if it helps them with their learning or with their, with their own planning. And, and I think the more that coaches do that, and there are a lot of um, high-level coaches now that are prepared to share stuff, I, th I think it's great for everyone. Yeah, that, that interacting with all coaches, and I think especially since, obviously, what's happened at the minute with the lockdown, but what's been really good and positive on Twitter and a lot of other platforms is the amount of sharing the coaches are doing. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's, it's really good. Everyone seems to be, I mean, it always, it always has been good, but I think especially now that everyone's, um, you know, kind of stuck at home. So people are online more, people are willing to share and it's been really, really positive. It has. People are prepared to share. There's been all sorts of Zoom calls going on, meetings, um, the FA have been doing webinars, other organisations have been doing webinars. I've been picking up bits and pieces from um, from clubs all, all over the world. And I've had to like, I've been taking philosophy presentations written in Spanish and I've had to try and translate them in German. And But it's great learning from all these other cultures as well and how they do things slightly differently. I've ended up having um conversations with some coaches in norway and with an academy director in dubai another academy director in in miami um and, it, and it's brilliant it, we all we all love this game and we've all got so many different opinions but the coaches within it are, are all there working for, for the players yes of course they're working for themselves as am i I, I'm a, I, want, I want my career to be a success in football but we're all helping each other and like you say at this time even even more so and i think it will continue afterwards or at least i hope it does um, and the more that we can increase the knowledge of the whole, then the more we'll, we'll, the further we'll go. Exactly. Oh, sorry, sorry Jan, go on. No, exactly as you said, and, and the game will improve so much more. And I can just imagine the the first week back, the amount of new ideas the coaches are going to have 
<laughs> the players aren't going to know what's happening. We're going to have loads of different new ideas, but it's it's going to be great. It is, and I think the big thing for me has been where I've had some of these conversations um, talking about philosophies. Is one of the ones is a playing philosophy. So at clubs, and I guess this is more towards your elite level clubs um, or serious clubs is trying to get a playing philosophy from right from your youth players up up to your first team. So I, I spoke to, uh, I won't mention the club because I haven't asked if I can yet, but I, um, I spoke to a lady who has been appointed as a development manager for a female club um, uh, in, in England who have their sights set on the WSL. They want to get up to the top flight. Uh, and the, her role uh, within this club is to make sure that more players are promoted from the youth team and become regular first teamers, like like every academy should be. That should be their focus. Um, and there's, uh, they've not got a huge amount of funding, so it's not necessarily been in place before. Um, and now they, they really want to get it through. So we were just talking about how this might be done or trying to build the, the project plan, I guess, to achieve it. And we started by discussing, well, what does a first team player look like? What, what is that player capable of doing? Uh, what are the attributes that that player has across the four corners? So technically, tactically, psychologically, socially, physically, what attributes do they need to have? And then work backwards. So if you've got a first team player that's um, breaking into the team in their late teens, early 20s, what do they then, what sort of level of development would we expect them to be at by the time they're 15 or 16? Um, because they need to be on track to get to this first team. And then you go back another stage. Well, where would they be at 14? Where would they be at 12? What would they be at 10? And they even right back to eight. And you can go, well, I, can't, I wouldn't expect my eight-year-old to know how to, to um, play with a, with a flat back four and play the offside trap, for example. <laughs> um, but by eight, they need to have some, some decent ball mastery skills. They need to be able to control the ball and they need to be able to pass it to, to a teammate or into the space or into the area that, that we want them to pass it to, and then they'd grow on that. And if they're going to have a first team, that their philosophy is um, we're going to retain possession, then your eight-year-old needs to start thinking about passing to teammates. However, if you've got a first team player and actually we're going to focus on getting the ball early as, as forward as early as possible, then we need to start having... Uh, a 12-year-old a getting their head up and everyone needs to get their head up obviously but start looking for those forward runs more often and, and so once you've got an idea of what your first team player looks like you can, you can break it down and that's quite a lot of the work I've been doing to help, to help individuals and to help clubs develop that framework but I've also spent a lot of time on my own so if I had if I had everything my own way in my own club um, I've been working on my own philosophy of play, which is very much linked to the positional um, positional play, which is always having more than one available passing option, preferably having more than even two passing options, creating overloads of having more players in every area of the pitch, progressing the ball up through the thirds, making sure you progress as a team so you've always got numerical superiority, playing penetrating passes, etc. So I, I think I'm probably not the only one that's used this downtime to look back at their own philosophies and and what that actually looks like on the pitch and what that looks like then in training for all different age groups and start to write it down. So I'm, I'm so excited. I can't wait to get back to coaching because I feel like I've got a better understanding of, of everything I'm going to be doing. And, um, and I've really enjoyed helping other people get their own thinking in, into that order as well. So true. I think everyone's itching now at the minute to get back on the grass. But the, yeah, also, as you just said there, I think it really adds the consistency at clubs with that club philosophy and linking it back because especially I think at grassroots uh, clubs, um, I'm sure it's different to everyone, but you could definitely get the sense that the under 15s are completely different to the under 14s. They're completely different yep. to the under 13s. But with that club philosophy, I'm sure it can add that consistency throughout the club because, you know, especially at grassroots uh, coaches, are sometimes the parents and if the player drops out, they can leave. So you can get that turnover of uh, coaches and players, but to yeah. have that consistency of an identity of that club is so important, and it's um, it's great of what you're working with there. It is it is important, and it helps the clubs as well because if all of the information is inside one or two key individuals' minds, um, it's not documented, it's not shared, 
should anything happen to them, sometimes you see you see literally the demise of a club, a complete closure of a club that had dozens, if not over a hundred players or, or more, because one or two individuals have moved on um, uh, for whatever reason it may be, and that's a real shame. So, I I've, I mean, I played amateur football um, after I <laughs> wasn't so good anymore, but I played amateur football for one team mainly, and the club is now seventy. Two years old, I think we had our seventieth anniversary a few, a few years back, um, and I always said to everyone in it that we're just custodians of the club for a short period of time. Imagine if the club could be here in seventy years' time, and they can look back at some of the things that we did, maybe some of the trophies that we won, and some of the photos we've got of our of our nights out or our end of season dinners, etc. Like we're looking back now, and we're just and every club's the same. You're just a custodian of a of a feeling of a community and, and you're just moving it forwards. And if you can leave it in a better place than when you found it, then, then that's great. But to do that, you need to share all these ideas and you need to have that identity and you need to make sure you've got the right people that, that will take that on to the next stage. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think um, in with the probably one of the greatest sports teams of all time with, with the All Blacks, New Zealand, they um, have that saying as well, don't they? Yep. Leave the shirt in, in a better place than when you found it. And that comes from their, you know, quite dominant club philosophy or nation philosophy, if you like. Uh, and as you said there, it's, it's, it's so true in any club that you're, that you're at to get that foundation. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. And in terms of the, the, the playing side, where you talked you talk just now, Dan, about the under-13s are different from 14s, different from the 15s. If you decide that your club aim is to develop players, um, that you are a very good grassroots club that's going to try and feed players into professional clubs or feed players into a higher level, then you you need to have that discussion between coaches of, of, of the age groups. Because you might have a 13-year-old who's playing in a good team but is absolutely dominating every game. You might have a forward that's scoring a hat-trick every match. And if they, they, they're having that much success, are they still learning? Are they still growing? Because they're not being challenged. So let's play that 13 who's an under-14s. Play them up in the under-15s. Let's see if they're still successful when they go up against slightly stronger, slightly more experienced players. Um, and if they are, fantastic. Um, and, and that means they can grow a bit more. The difficulty is at grassroots level that sometimes you will come across the odd coach or go, oh, but he's our best player. You can't take him. We won't be as good. And you need to... I. I strongly believe as a coach, you should be always looking at what's best for the players and not best for for you. Um, and therefore, if the development of that player should come first, then you, you need to move them on. And likewise, then you should look down and maybe go to your under-12s. Hey, have you got anyone that we should be looking at because we want to develop players and bring them on? Likewise, and you can't do it for regulations too much, but I know academies occasionally smaller players, physically smaller players are played down an age group because the coaches recognise that they're gonna, they've got great potential, but they just can't get in the game because of their physicality. They go down to players at the same size as them, and suddenly they stand out again, and then they get success, and then they develop, and, and then they turn into fantastic players. I mean, if you look, I mean, the, the perfect example, obviously, everyone knows about is Lionel Messi. I mean, he was a tiny child all the way through his development. He's still a small adult, relatively small adult, but look how amazing player he is. If he wasn't given the opportunities to play at different levels, he, he wouldn't have developed into the player he is. And interestingly, you mentioned the All Blacks, Dan. In New Zealand, uh, I might have my figure slightly wrong, but I believe they put teams together based on weight. This is rugby teams. Uh, up or down, up to three years, I think. So if you've got a really big 12-year-old, they could be playing with 15-year-olds, but if you've got a smaller 15-year-old, they might drop down and play with 12s. And so they, they, they try and get the weight the same because it, the weight and the strength obviously has such an impact on, on your ability to play rugby. But that way they're developing more and more players capable of playing the game. Um, and I think it's something that we should be looking at. I've recently been doing a lot of reading about the relative age effect. And teachers will be well aware of this. And you have a 1st of September baby versus a 31st of August baby. They're in the same school year. But the difference at seven, eight and nine is enormous because they've had a year's worth of more learning, of more development, of social development. Um, and so they make allowances for their, for their younger children. But in professional football in academies, Q1, so um, September to November and Q, so it's, they do October to December and January to March. The Q1 and Q2 makes up 
something like 70% or 75% of all the players in academies. Once you're coming down to Q4, which is your summer babies, your June, July, August, none of them are getting in, or very few of them are getting into academies. Yet the England national team now, men's this is, there's a pretty much an exact equal split. So 25% of the squad are from Q1 and 25% from Q2, 3 and 4. So it proves that summer babies can develop into good players if they're given the opportunity. The problem is they're not always given those opportunities. So it's something that coaches need to be very aware of um, at all stages and even in, in, in grassroots football, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting topic that to do with growth and maturity. And as you said there with um, in New Zealand with the rugby, yeah, they're doing a... It's, it's quite similar to biobanding, aren't they? Yep. With, um, they're, they're, they're looking at the maturity of the players and looking at the weight and um, how far off or 100% growth they are. Yep. And then matching them and um, it's the early maturers. We've actually got uh, Dr. Sean coming, who's an expert in biobanding and uh, growth and maturity matching on the podcast very soon. So, oh, brilliant. I'll definitely listen uh, to that. It's such, a, such an interesting topic. And as you said, even at grassroots level, because um, a lot of teams, if they, as you said, if they don't have that club philosophy in place of development, if they just want to win every game at grassroots, they might be playing their, um, their early developers, that you know, that Q1, Q2 players out. And then you're losing your smaller players who are eventually going to grow a bit bigger out of the system. So Yeah, exactly. And it'd be a real shame to lose them. Um, and these are some of the things from back to the mentoring that I do that we'll, we'll ask coaches and clubs to consider. We'll say, OK, well, have you put in place any policy around relative age effect? So if you've got, um, say, an under-10s team who are playing seven-a-side football um, are you making sure that each of your players are getting equal playtime regardless of, of how good they are? Because they might be an August baby and they might be behind that September baby um, because, because they've just had that year-long development. But if you give them opportunities now, in three years' time when they're under 13s, they could be the best player in the team because they've been given the opportunities now. So you need to have that long, long-term approach. And if that means that the club are lucky enough to field two squads, they might have a squad that's got Q1 and Q2 um, babies and then they play in an A league and then they've got three and four babies that play in a B league and so that they're playing against appropriately matched opposition then that's great and that just means that both that, that everyone's developing ideally you would mix them as well because you need to always challenge your players but it's just having the considerations in the first place and then you can you can work on it and no one's got the exact answer and every and every child develops differently but if you're at least recognizing it at least taking some steps to to implement your policies for it, then it can only lead to better things. We talked about earlier a lot of uh, sharing of content, and I know on Twitter uh, you're doing quite a lot of that at the minute, which is absolutely brilliant. And I think you posted yesterday about player analysis template yeah. you use with your team. So just describe a bit around that. So this is um, it's, it's, it's a simple Excel spreadsheet, basically, um, where I wrote down all of the various attributes I could think of that you might assess a player in. And looking back, actually, uh, since I shared it yesterday, um, a few more I'd like to add in, which I will do to my own copy soon. Um, but there are over 100 different attributes. It covers all of your technical things, passing, heading, shooting, control, etc. But right down to your tactical knowledge, your, your understanding of your role of, or of the few roles that you play, um, and then your the social side of your your development are you a leader are you a player that responds well to setbacks um are you uh are you someone that supports your teammates are you, th those types of things so all the different attributes i could think of and then in the example that i shared um it was from an under 16 team that i worked with there were 17 players in that squad and i just listed their names across the top of the spreadsheet and then tried to gauge where i thought they were on a scale of one to five, um, one being low, five being high in, in each attribute. Um, the, the great thing I think about it was I color-coded the one to five, so one was a red and five was a green, and it created a bit of a heat map on when you looked at the spreadsheet as a whole, and it instantly could spot areas that the whole squad were particularly good at or a whole area where they had areas that we could improve in. Um, uh, they, were, they, were, they were very good 
they're a very good under 16 team um playing in the, the top division in their area and technically a lot, there was lots of green on, on, on the sheet um, but tactically and as you'd expect for players of their age only 15 years old um, it wasn't screen there was some ambers in there and that, that was some areas that we focused on for the season so by doing that assessment at the start um, I was able to then focus focus the training in the right areas and then I used the you know, share, the, share, the, share the assessment with the players and their parents at the start and then each six weeks we'll report back to show where they are on that assessment again. Are they moving up? And the aim is to develop individual development plans. So you might go, okay, I want my, we've got a full back, we've got a left back. And currently when he goes into press, he arrives really quickly. His body position is good in terms of getting low and getting on his toes. He's focusing on the ball. Um, but this is actually a true story. We, we had a, a left back who would show his opposite winger inside. He would show them inside towards pitch. So the right winger, he, he would open up his body so that they could run inside. And I was like, well, why are you doing that? That means they're going towards the goal. He said to me, it's because he felt that he wasn't very fast. And if he showed them outside, that they'd beat him for pace and get past him and, and cross the ball in. And I said, well, that might be the case, but we can work on that. But actually, if they go past you on the inside, it's even worse because then they're in on goal and potentially could get shot away. So we just, we said, right, so over the next few weeks, we'd like you, every time you go in and press, is to get your body shape in the right position to show your right winger, your opposite man, um, down the left-hand side, away from goal, and then we'll work on your timing of blocks, top, uh, timing of interceptions, making sure they don't get that cross in, and how to anticipate uh, when they're going to move there, so that we can make it. We, if you're thinking faster than them, then your natural, then your physical pace is less of a, an issue if you're already one mental step ahead of them. And over the the weeks and months that we worked on that, he he picked it up, and every single time he showed them the way, and then he would just intercept, he would block crosses, and he, he did it really well. But he had that would bit was a one of the few points we gave him on his individual development plan to work on. He went away and watched um, some fullbacks. I gave him the example of Danny Alves. He went and watched Danny Alves as an incredibly attacking fullback, but also looked at his defensive side of things. Um, going back a few years now, one of the um, most successful fullbacks England have ever had is Ashley Cole, and he he holds a record of having faced Ronaldo and Messi something like eight times in his career and between them they've only scored once uh, so he was doing something right so I'm like just just go and watch Ashley he, was, <laughs> he wasn't too bad um, and, and see what you can pick up loads of highlights on YouTube and, and that's just the homework that he did and then they come back into training going right Aaron I think I've got it and let's show me uh, I'll, I'll just, I said show me and, and they, they go on with it so that was the purpose of the template it's like I say it was really simple um, the since sharing it I've had well, I've had lots and lots and lots of people ask for it. So for anyone that has, anyone that listens to this and still waiting for it, I'm sorry, I will get it to you as soon as possible. But the, some of the comments I've had is how, how do you give them a one to five rating? What is that based on? And it's a really good question. And it's one that is, is completely subjective. And it is my opinion. It's the coaches that I work with. It's our joint opinion. And it could probably be and most likely will be different from everyone else's opinion, which is why we all, we all pick different teams, etc. Um, but there are, there are some scales that I think you could use it for. You might say that a five means that you're the best at that attribute in your team and therefore your one to five is rated on your team. Or you might say if you're a five, you're, the, you're comparing it to all the teams in your competition. So within you, your league, let's say you had finishing one-on-one, -on -one, you might say little Tommy, our striker, is a five. We think he is the best one-to-one -one one -on -one finisher in the league bar no one. So therefore you'd give him a five. Um, or you might say... We think five is brilliant and this is where we want to get you. And we've got a, a picture in our head of what that looks like. And we'd like you to be there by the end of this season. And at the start of the season, we think you're on a three. So you've got those two steps to go up to, to get to a five. And we want everyone to be getting up to five in their attributes. Now, that doesn't mean they are a five against maybe all the other players in the league or, or anything else, but it, it just shows progress. And I think that's the, the important thing is anyone using it or anyone doing player analysis is you don't use it as a, a literal rating that player isn't a five out of five they are a five on the basis that you've given them a five whatever that may be if you've given them a four and at the start of the season they've gone to a five by the end of the season they've improved does that mean they've improved exactly by a factor of, of one or of 25 percent? of course not but they, they, you've seen a, a measurable improvement and, and that's what's important yeah, I think I think that's brilliant. I mean, a lot of clubs say that they're player centered or focus on player development, and you can do that in many ways. But I think this definitely shows it. And by reviewing it every six weeks, 
as you said, it's great to because you can go and you can lose a game, or you can lose two games in a row, and then might win one or draw one. And it's you know, for the players that can be up and down, but if they can look at the the sheets that you've given them and their project projects, you can say, this is where I'm at, this is where I need to improve, and I think that's good for players because the players that I've worked with, they're always looking to you know where can I improve, and it's this is a great way to show them, and then they can yeah. go away and work on if it's looking at players or if it's um, you know testing out new things that you set them that that homework or that post training challenges it's it's a great way to develop yeah absolutely I think so and ultimately your performance on the pitch is a sum of all of the training that you put in and all of the development work that you put in bar luck and there is a huge amount of luck in football um, um, but we can't control luck we can't do anything about luck and the theory is over the season your, your luck should even itself out um, but regardless the, the things that you can control are the things that you should focus on if you know that you, or you, it's been identified again going to my left back's example that he shows someone inside when we'd like to show him outside then that's something measurable if we were then to work a video his next five games after we've spent a block of training on that and nine times out of ten he shows his winger the right way and the, the four games beforehand it was only five, that's a measurable improvement. If the team lost all five of those games, does that mean that he's not improved? Well, no, he has in this area. It might be other areas we need to work on or it might be something else went wrong within the team. I mean, as a team, we, we talk, we, it's, an, it's an individual sport within a team sport, isn't it? You, you need your strikers to be scoring goals. You need your goalkeepers to be saving them. Um, and if I'm a striker and I'm, I've scored four and my defence concede five, does that mean I've not improved? Well, no, I, I, clearly I have. So there needs to be a way of measuring that and rewarding that. Yes, we all want to win games and that's the ultimate aim. But an individual's performance should not be... You can't measure that on the score. That's just, it's just not realistic, unfortunately. Definitely. And I mean, generally, with football being such a low scoring game, a lot of luck comes into it, as you said, apart from that 5 4 that you just mentioned there. But um, generally, you know, it's not um, in basketball, a lot of the time, the better team wins because it's such a high scoring game. But in football, you know, a deflection or a, you know, a A beach ball. Yeah, or a beach (laughs) ball, you never know. Um, or an odd refereeing decision can can completely change it because it's such a low-scoring game. So having the players um, have their development not just focused on the result and there, I'd, I think as a player, I would be more focused on that shoot that you've given me because I know this is what the coach who you know is quite a, a role model or a powerful figure, this is what they think of me and this is how I need to improve and where I need to improve. Regardless, OK, I do want to win on the Sunday, of course, but if I can be improving at this, the results will come. That, that's the thing. If, if, if you've got a squad of 16 players and they're all incrementally improving their game, then you just have to be getting better as a team. You, you just have to be. Um, and uh, some of the attributes within the spreadsheet that I mentioned are things, or am I, do, do, I engage, do I work well within my unit? So if I'm a centre-back, do I work well with the rest of my defenders? Or... Do I work well with my goalkeeper? Do we communicate well? So you've then got two people or three people within a unit all working on, say, their communication. Um, then, then that unit's going to perform better in the game. So whilst it's not just individual technique of the fullback showing the right position, it'll be, OK, is the centre-back and the fullback now talking to each other? Is, is the centre-back helping the fullback get in the right position in the first place? Um, is he giving that fullback the the psychological sort of pick me up to go, go on, keep working, keep working, get his head down, don't let him cross the ball, make sure you don't let that cross in, I'm, I'm covering you, don't worry about behind you, you focus on that ball. That actually helps the left-back become better at their job, but it's the centre-back that's improving. And there are attributes uh, listed within that spreadsheet, which, was, which we would say to the centre-back as part of their individual development plan, you've got to talk more, you've got to be really authoritative, you've got to organise, you've got to help your full-backs out, you've got to help your CDMs out, and, and so on and forth, so forth. I mean, we talk a lot now about screening passes into central forwards. So um, we would use a, a central defensive midfielder to to sit in front of that centre forward and actually just screen the pass so that the opposite team can't even feed their, their main striker. Now, to how, how can that CDM see the striker if they're focusing on where the ball is? Okay, they might adopt a, a body shape where they can see both, but in reality, it's because the centre-back is telling them where to go. Centre-back's marking the opposite centre-forward, and then say they've got Dave in front of them again, 
Dave, Davey, can you move to your left, move to your right. Screen's gone left, it's gone right. Five to your left, five to your right. Drop five, press five. And it's all of that level of communication from the centre-back, which will help that central defensive midfielder screen. And it's again, you've got that unit. And there's so many different areas you can develop players on. But if you're all developing like that and you're developing in your units, then the team performance must get better. Definitely. I think, personally, that was my favourite part of that spreadsheet, is that you added in that uh, psychosocial... Um, elements to the games and to the players because it's so important and I think it would be so or it would be easier just to go oh I'm no good at shooting or we need to improve at tackling but having those other elements which is so important and I think the players can recognise them more if you put them down on the sheet there and tell them that they, you know these are important we're also reckoning you on this yes you need to be able to do this lofted pass but first of all I need you to be able to communicate to your players and your teammates yeah, absolutely. And we all learn in different ways. We, we, we obviously, we learn from seeing things, we learn from hearing things, and we learn from, from doing things. And <laughs> different players will be, will have, they'll, they'll learn, uh, we'll learn in all three ways, but they might be stronger in one or the other. And so as a coach, you need to be able to deliver your coaching to them in as many different modalities as possible. And by giving someone um, a sheet to go away with some written stuff and maybe some YouTube clips to watch, they will actually learn more from that than you standing on a touchline and shouting at them for 90 minutes because they just don't learn from hearing stuff. It's just the way they are. And we're all different. So um, I think that if you try and use all three modalities and any other that you can think of as much as possible, then, then you're going to have a better chance of success. Definitely. Okay, Aaron. So if people want to contact you, where should they go? Uh, there's a few places. The um, obvious one is Twitter. Um, my handle on Twitter is uh, is seven pro underscore soccer, seven p r o underscore s c a w c e r. That's the same for my Facebook page uh, as well. If you're on LinkedIn, I'm Aaron K Tyler, um, and you can also look at um, the very small amount of videos I have on YouTube at the moment, which I hope to increase. And that's pro seven soccer. Right. I mean, you're sharing some really good content, so I'd definitely advise people to go and check all those pl platforms out because um, there's, there's some great things on there. But I really enjoyed that. I hope uh, everyone else did as well. But there's some really insightful um, things in there. And, yeah, I mean, I wish you good luck when we do get back, which I hope will be soon. But um, in the meantime, I think people can learn from that and uh, hopefully go on the way to developing us as coaches. Dan, I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much. Cheers, Aaron. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. That's the end of the podcast, guys. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I thoroughly did. Subscribe for more and follow us on Twitter at WT Coaching.